Okay. So we can see other sentient beings as our friend, and they won't take advantage of us. Okay, so we're going to be on Chapter 10. It's called uh, Seeking Genuine Peace. But before that, we're going to take refuge and generate bodhicitta and so on. Uh-huh. So remember the visualization. And as you uh, imagine yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings, think that they're all your friend, that you can approach them with a friendly attitude rather than with a suspicious attitude. It doesn't mean you give them everything. So when we look at all sentient beings as friends, our heart is so much more relaxed. We're not afraid of them. We're not anxious about what they're going to do. It doesn't mean that we're a sucker. It just means that we have, you know, we approach people as a friend at the beginning and see what happens. Okay, so doing that is, uh, in order to see other sentient beings as friends, we have to stop the mind that is always criticizing them. Yeah, the mind that looks at them and picks at their faults and how they're lacking in this way and that way, and how we're better than them, and on and on and on. Yeah, because we can't see sentient beings as friends when we're, uh, when our, um, you know, complaining mind is overactive, when our judging mind is running the show. But when those minds are calmed, yeah, and it's so much easier to just see everybody as as friends, knowing that in some previous life we were, and in some future life we will be again. And in that way, to think of attaining full awakening for their uh, benefit is not so difficult because we like them already. Okay, so let's cultivate that friendly attitude. Actually, um, metta, in some cases, is translated as friendliness. Also, also translated as love or loving kindness. It's the same idea. And so use that as to uh, increase and to motivate us to realize emptiness so that we can be of the greatest benefit to beings. Okay, seeking genuine happiness. So each of us wants happiness and not dukkha. 
but among the various types of happiness, which is the best? Because we always want the best, don't we? Okay, so the Buddha answered, Monastics, there are these two kinds of happiness. What two? Sensual happiness and the happiness of renunciation. So remember, renunciation means the aspiration to attain uh, liberation. Of these two kinds of happiness, the happiness of renunciation is foremost. So remember, we're not renouncing happiness, we're renouncing dukkha and its causes. So monastics, there are these two kinds of happiness. What two? The happiness with defilements and the happiness without defilements. Of these two kinds of happiness, the happiness without defilements is foremost. Monastics, there are these two kinds of happiness. What two? Worldly happiness and spiritual happiness. Of these two kinds of happiness, spiritual happiness is foremost. Okay. So with a group of young adults, we were discussing this morning how um, one person brought up that when you think of impermanence, then you feel discouraged and depressed, and it's kind of scary, and, you know, you want to be happy, but you're not sure where happiness is going to come from because everything's impermanent. And uh, so I talked, you know, I said, it feels like that. It feels scary like that when we have only learned about true dukkha and the true cause of dukkha. Yeah, when we learn about the last two truths, true cessation and true path, then that's where the happiness is coming in. And we see that that's an alternative kind of happiness to the samsaric happiness, yeah, to the eight worldly concerns especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we talked about how at the beginning of the Dharma practice, sometimes people really, you know, they, they hear renunciation, they hear, you know, the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns and this kind of thing, and then they think that they're just not supposed to be happy, that there's something wrong with, with happiness, there's something wrong with pleasure, yeah? And uh, that's certainly not what the Buddha's getting at. He's just saying, well, yeah, there's different, there's worldly pleasure and spiritual pleasure, but one is superior to the other. So which one do you want to create the causes for? Which one do you want to aim for? Uh He's not saying, don't be happy. (laughs) Okay, here, renunciation, happiness without defilements, and spiritual happiness referred to liberation. The Buddha steers us to a higher and more commendable type of happiness, the peace that goes beyond samsara, the joy of nirvana and full awakening. And that joy, that happiness, doesn't provoke attachment in us. So we're not sitting there like, Oh, I'm craving nirvana. <laughs> Gotta have some nirvana. It, it's just the, such a great happiness. No, it's, it's a totally different mindset. While we may experience many kinds of happiness in our present human rebirth, all of these fail, pale in comparison to the joy and peace of nirvana. Because the pleasures of this life are immediate, and appeal strongly to our senses, some people have difficulty gaining confidence in the peace of nirvana. To give up craving for sense pleasures requires an understanding of their defects and of the benefits of nirvana. If you don't see the benefits of nirvana, it's going to be hard 
to let go of attraction to sensual things. And if you don't see the defects of your attachment to sense objects, then you won't be able to give that up that attachment either. Yeah. And so you just sit there and think about chocolate all day. You know? The more we understand these kinds of things, the more our mind will naturally turn away from cyclic existence to liberation. Okay? So we don't need to force our mind here. Oh, I, I need to aspire for liberation. You know, like, like the Buddha or somebody else is making us aspire for liberation. They're bossing us around and telling us what to do. Yeah. So, of course, somebody tells us what to do. We don't want to do it. So, uh, you know, that's not what's going on. Uh, Buddha's pointing out an alternative that in our present uh, capacity, we can't ordinarily see. But we don't have to wait until we attain liberation or awakening to experience Dharma happiness. Each time we release attachment, anger, and other afflictions in our daily lives, Dharma happiness, peace, and confidence take their place. And that's true, isn't it? When you're holding on to something, you're upset about something, you know, you feel misunderstood and people are, Bleh. yeah, they don't understand you and they're not, yeah. And you hold on to that and you're angry. Yeah, you're miserable. Uh, nobody's happy when they're angry. When we're able to really practice the antidotes to anger and our mind changes and we drop that anger, then it's a big relief, and automatically there's the feeling of happiness right there. Yeah. So I think it's it's quite helpful to really, with all of the afflictions, because sometimes we're quite attached even to the afflictions, and we think that the afflictions protect us. You know, we confuse pride and confidence. I've got to be proud. I've got to tell people what I'm good at. Otherwise, they're going to ignore me and trash me. Yeah. And then we go about acting in that way. And that makes us actually quite miserable because other people don't like us, you know. We start bragging and everything, and people go, ugh. Yeah. And we feel worse. And also, when we put ourselves up like that, it's actually very stressful because as soon as you become number one, the only way to go is down. And I remember talking to one friend of mine. Uh, she had gone back to school, to college, and she had scored very well in something. And, uh, and she was telling me how anxious she became after she got the highest score of the whole class, because then there was so much pressure to repeat it and do it again and make sure everybody understood. And then also, you know, if people think you're so wonderful, then they get jealous of you. Yeah, And we may say, well, I want people to be jealous of me. But do you really? Yeah. Have you ever had people jealous of you? And how, how do you feel around people who are jealous of you? It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Because they, they don't like you simply because they're jealous and they can't even see how they're, you know, what their own interpretation is doing. So, but if we're sitting there bragging, then we contributed to that, didn't we? Yeah. Okay. So it's very good to spend some time in the meditation looking at each affliction and, you know, either remembering a time when it was strong in your mind or imagine having that affliction strong in your mind 
and how you're going to think, how you're going to act, and then ask yourself, am I happy? Yeah? Somebody else is doing their same old thing that drives me crazy. I can't stand it. Why do they always do that? And your mind starts ruminating and can go on for a really long time, can't it? Yeah? And are we happy when our mind is ruminating about how angry we are because somebody did some small thing? Yeah? How much time do we we waste being angry? Over and irritate over things that irritate us. And I don't know about you, but when I look, a lot of the, in a lot of the situations where I get irritated with what people are doing, they're actually trying to help me. Yeah. And I just, I don't want to be helped in that way. How acting like that? And, It's such a waste of energy. Yeah? Especially if they're trying to help you. And you... Okay. So when we can see, you know, from our own experience, the the defects, you know, starting with the fact that even right here and now, the afflictions make us miserable, and then extending to the kind of karma that they create and how when they're active in our mind, they block us from understanding emptiness or generating bodhicitta or anything else. So when we can see that, then it's easier to let them go. And then you right away have dharma happiness. Have you ever experienced that kind of dharma happiness? It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so experiencing this Dharma happiness here and now gives us a small glimpse of the peace of of nirvana. We begin this section, or we began this section on the 12 links of dependent origination with the Buddha's succinct statement on causality and conditionality. So the Buddha said, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Okay. So the first two lines, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. Those first two lines tell us that samsara comes about due to a causal process, which we have explored in the previous two chapters when we've talked about the 12 links. Okay, the last two lines that say, when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Okay, those two lines inform us that nirvana the cessation of samsara and its origins can be attained through eliminating ignorance, the fundamental cause of samsara. When this does not exist, when ignorance does not exist, karmic formations don't come to be, and so on. When the causes and conditions of samsara do not exist, the resultant state of dukkha will not arise. With the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance. That's a phrase that comes very often in the Pali uh, Sutras. With the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance, the new creation of all the other links will cease. Just as when the first domino in a row is hit, the others tumble down as well. So 12 links, you can see them as dominoes, you know, run right after the other, and you hit one, and it goes, okay. That used to be the uh, American theory of their foreign policy and was one of the main thoughts in the Vietnam War, that they'll, if it becomes communist, 
all of Southeast Asia will become communist. Yeah. So it's, it's the same kind of idea. Okay. Although I don't know if the political one was really true. This one about nirvana is true. What brings the cessation of ignorance? According to the common Buddhist view, it is the Eightfold Path, especially the wisdom or true knowledge that understands the four truths and nirvana. Okay, So that's uh, the object to, to be realized by true path, the four truths and nirvana. And that's as it's taught in the Pali tradition and uh, in the general perfection uh, vehicle in the Mahayana tradition. According to the Prasangika's unique view, it also entails the direct non-conceptual realization of the emptiness of inherent existence of all persons and phenomena. So it's not just the realization of the four truths and nirvana, but it includes especially seeing the four truths and nirvana themselves as empty of inherent existence. The process of gaining this wisdom is a gradual one, which itself depends on many causes and conditions. So if you come into Dharma all excited, and I'm going to realize all this stuff next week, remember it depends on many causes and conditions. Yeah, and it may take a while to create these causes and conditions. Okay, so then there's a section here on the Yi Dharma uh, Dharani. So this is the one that you say when you bless the speech every morning. So there's a story behind it and also great meaning behind it. And uh, so when I heard this, I thought, you know, nobody, I've never heard the explanation for this mantra before. It's got to go in this book. Okay, so I put it in and I find it, uh, yeah, quite inspiring. Okay, so a Durrani, which is an intelligible phrase that encapsulates the essence of a teaching. So, so a Durrani that is frequently recited by followers of both the Pali and Sanskrit traditions is the essence of dependent arising Durrani. And so in Sanskrit, it means Om Yi Dharma Hetu Prabhava Hetu Nteshan Tathagato Hewada Teshan Chayo Niroda Edam Vadi Mahashramanaya. Okay, when you're doing the, it is a mantra, you have Yi Soha at the end. Okay, but this is the, the bare uh, statement. So its translation is, all phenomena arise from causes. Those causes have been taught by the Tathagata, and their cessation too has been proclaimed by the great renunciant. So the Buddha himself is called the renunciant. He's renounced dukkha and its causes. So before becoming a follower of the Buddha, Shariputra encountered the Arhat Ashvajit, and asked him to explain the essence of the Tathagata's teaching to him. So Ashvajit recited these words, and their and their full un, uh, recited these words, and fully understanding oh, and fully understanding their meaning, Shariputra immediately became a stream enter. So I just told you it's going to take a while to create the causes. Shariputra created a lot of the causes before this lifetime. That's why he was able to hear this and become a stream enterer right away. Also, he was exceptionally intelligent. He was the Buddha's foremost uh, disciple of in terms of wisdom. Okay, so he heard that, immediately became a, a stream enterer. I'm like Shariputra. I can do that. Say the mantra to me, you know. Well, um, <laughs> so Shariputra later recited uh, 
the, this uh, Dharani to his friend uh, Magliana, who attained the same realization. So you see birds of a feather hang out to get, fly together. Yeah. So choose your friends well, because if they attain stream entry, <laughs> it's looking good for you too. Okay. So they, they had 500 followers, these two, uh, Shariputra and Mahamogliana. So they and their 500 and 500 of their followers then approached the Buddha and requested to become his disciples. So fearlessly and with complete self-confidence, the Buddha did not hesitate to proclaim four statements. So here are the four. He is fully awakened. I should do it in the first person because he proclaimed the statement. So I'm quoting him. Okay, I am fully awakened. I have destroyed all pollutants. I have... yeah, I have correctly identified all obscurations. I know that the Dharma, when practiced correctly, leads to the destruction of dukkha. So that's what the Buddha said. So these are often, there's two different ways to translate the term or that I've seen it. It's, there, it's called the four fearlessnesses or the four self-confidences. Yeah, or the self-confidences. For self-confidence, confidences. Yeah. Okay. So you can choose which translation. I, I personally like the four kinds of self-confidence. You know. Uh, yeah. But to have self-confidence, you also have to be fearless. Okay. So that now we're gonna show uh, some conjoining of those four self-confidences, yeah, the um, four statements that are uh, in the mantra and the four truths. So there's going to be some correlations here. So the phrase, all phenomena arise from causes, that's the first phrase in the Yi Dharma, uh, Dharani, that indicates that each link of dependent origination comes into being dependent on the preceding ones. Okay, all phenomena arises from causes. Yeah, each link depends on the preceding one. This emphasizes that true dukkha, yeah, the seven resultant links, arises from true origin the three links that are the afflictions and the two that are karma. Okay, so what are the seven resultant links that are true dukkha? The results of consciousness. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, consciousness, name and form, six sources, six sources. contact, feeling, birth, for aging and, aging and death. So those are the, the seven results, okay? They come from three afflictions and two kinds of karma, which are the causes. What are the three afflictions? Ignorance, craving, clinging. Okay, and what are the two kinds of karma? Okay, so um, why does my mind go down? My formative action, yeah, and renewed existence. Yeah, so those are links two and ten. So that's what was just explaining here. So you have to remember what you learned before to understand what it's saying here. So here the Buddha instructs everyone who seeks liberation to abandon true origin. He says this by means of the third self-confidence by which he has correctly identified the obscurations to liberation. Okay, so to review the three, the four self-confidences, okay, the Buddha is fully awakened. 
He has destroyed all pollutants. He has correctly identified all obscurations. So that's the one there. Yeah, that correlates with all phenomena arise from causes, which is talking about true dukkha. Okay. And then, uh, then the next one was he has correctly, oh no, that was the one we, yeah, he has correctly identified all obscurations and he knows the Dharma that, uh, when practiced correctly leads to the destruction of dukkha. Okay, so that's one. Then the second phrase, yeah, these causes have been taught by the Tathagata. So that's from the Mon- the Dharani. That indicates that the Buddha has taught the counterforce to samsara, the true path, a consciousness that directly perceives the selflessness of persons and phenomena. Okay, so that phrase, those causes have been taught by the Tathagata, correlates with the true path. And the Buddha states that in reliance on the fourth self-confidence, that he knows the way leading to the complete destruction of dukkha. Yeah, that's, can you imagine, I mean, having that confidence to be able to say that? And then you have a group of people like you who ask questions. Yeah, that people like me sit here and go, uh, uh, ask a Buddha. And then you have the Buddha in front and you can actually ask the Buddha and get a, get an answer to your question. And the Buddha has the total confidence to be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. And then the next phrase, as and their cessation too. So the Buddha has taught the causes and their sensation too. So that indicates that by practicing true paths, we will attain the final true cessation that is the eradication of true dukkha and true origins. So the Buddha states this by means of the second self-confidence, knowing that he has eradicated all pollutants. Okay? So, and their cessation too... He's talking about true cessations, and he says that because he has the self-confidence that he's eradicated all the pollutants and has attained true cessation. And then the last phrase um, has been proclaimed by the great uh, renunciant. So that means that the Buddha has actualized true paths and true cessations and thus has completely perfected what to practice and what to abandon. So we hear that phrase a lot, what to practice and what to abandon. Okay, yeah, that came up a lot in chapter two of Brahmanavartika, remember? Okay, so the Buddha uh, talks about this by means of the first self-confidence, being able to state with complete assurance that he is awakened with respect to all phenomena. So this short dharani contains great meaning because it incorporates the four truths, the eightfold path, a Buddha's truth body, that is the perfection of abandonment and realization, and a Buddha's form body that acts to bend benefit all beings with the self the four self-confidences. Okay, so those four are uh, also what gives the bow the Buddha the ability to really benefit sentient beings and show show the way out of samsara. A profound understanding of this Dharani which will enable us to attain the four bodies of a Buddha. Whoa Okay, you just have to understand those lines, and you got it. But understanding those lines is a a project, a long-term project. But it's interesting, isn't it, how you can take something really huge and compact it into 
you know, a, fruit, a few phrases. And they say that that's uh, one quality of a good Dharma teacher, somebody who could explain something really long and give you the full explanation, and they can also abbreviate it so that, it, you know, it's succinct. And when we have the verses that we recite after lunch, you know, every day, those are the ones that are the succinct things. And if we've heard the teachings on the text and have thought about the text, then even when you're chanting those verses, you know, there's a lot of meaning coming in your mind. Okay, and then there's a chart that shows the phrase in the in the Dharani, the relationship to the four truths, and then which self-confidence applies to that. Yeah. I think these things where you take different lists and correlate them, I think that's really cool. Because sometimes you just hear, you know, oh, there's four of this and five of that, and you know, they, you learn lots of lists. Yeah, but when you have somebody that takes them and correlates them like this, then you really, it brings so much more understanding. And this is really a speciality of His Holiness, how He teaches. Okay, now the forward and reverse orders of the afflictive and purified signs of the 12 links. Okay. So you have two things here, forward and reversed orders, and then another set of two things, afflictive and purified sides of the 12 links. Okay, so the 12 links of dependent origination can be spoken of in terms of affliction, how samsara continues, and purification, how cyclic existence ceases. Both the afflictive and purified presentation have a forward and a reverse order. Okay. So how many P are there going to be? How many possibilities between these four? I mean, between, yeah, between these four things, how many possibilities? Huh? Well, here we're comparing four things. <laughs> Compare, if you want to, take one, if you want to do just two things, okay? Take uh, one from the first title and compare it to two in the second title, then do the second one in the first set and compare it to the next two in the second set. Basically, if you think, I bet you can come up with the number of, of these possibilities. I bet if you think about it, yes. Okay, she said, "Take them as pairs." So, so then, how many are you are you getting? You guys have forgotten everything. I think you would get four. Yeah, yeah. What are the four? Um, afflictive forward, afflictive reverse, purified forward, purified reverse. Exactly. You didn't think of that. Oh, it was the question. <laughs> anyway, we solved that puzzle. Okay, so both the afflictive and purified presentations have a forward and reverse order. So the forward order of the afflictive side emphasizes the origins of dukkha. In other words, with ignorance as condition, formative action arises. With formative action as condition, consciousness arises. With consciousness as condition, name and form arises, and you go through. So that's the forward order of the afflictive side. Yeah. Why is it called afflictive? 
because it's under the control of ignorance. Okay? And so you, you do it like that up to uh, birth, uh, with birth as condition, aging and death arise. Then the reverse order of the re- afflictive side emphasizes the resultant true dukkha. Okay? So the forward one showed the cause of the true dukkha. The, uh, af- the reverse one shows the result, okay, of, of those causes. So the resultant true dukkha. Okay? Aging and death are produced in dependence on birth. Birth is produced in dependence on renewed existence. Renewed existence is de- uh, arises dependent on renew, uh, um, clinging. Clinging arises dependent on craving. And so on back to formative action is produced in dependence on ignorance. So that's afflictive and it's reversed because you start at the 12th length and go backwards. Okay, so the purified forward and reverse sequence indicates the method for quelling samsara and attaining liberation. That's why it's called the purified sequence. Okay, so the forward order of the purified sequence or purified side says, by seeking ignorance, formative action ceases. By seeking formative action, consciousness ceases and so on, up to, by ceasing birth, aging and death ceases. Okay? So this sequence emphasizes the true path that cease ignorance, and thus stopping the other links from arising. So it starts out with, you know, by ceasing ignorance. So what's going to cease ignorance? The true path. And then you go, this is the domino effect going this way. You seek ignorance and then plop, 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 all the rest fall down. The reverse order of the purified side begins with the last link, aging or death, and investigates how to cease it. So that is done by ceasing birth. Okay. And how do we cease birth? By ceasing renewed existence. How do we cease renewed existence? By ceasing clinging. Yeah, clinging is ceased by by ceasing craving. And we go all the way back to ceasing ignorance. So looking at the 12 links in this way emphasizes true cessation, that all the links can be ceased and nirvana attained. Okay, so the forward order of the purified side expresses the true path that you can make these things cease. And then the reverse order of the purified side emphasizes the true cessation that all these things are ceased by the previous ones, going back to ceasing ignorance. And then there's a chart explaining that one too. Okay. So it's um, you can quiz yourself on these things. Yeah, ask ask each other questions instead of, why did you put the spatula there? Um, <laughs> ask ask somebody, you know, what what's the forward sequence, um, the forward purified sequence of the uh, twelve links? You know, ask those kind of questions and then test each other. Okay. So the question then arises, how do we cease the ignorance that is the origin of cyclic existence? So this is the big question. We beginners must first develop a robust understanding of karma and its effects and bring that into our lives so that it influences our daily choices and actions. Okay, so that's the, before delving into emptiness and you know, we have to have a very strong confidence in how cause and effect work explicitly or particularly karmic cause and effect. Yeah, because if we don't have that kind of robust understanding, then when you start negating things, 
when meditating on emptiness, you think that, uh, you know, you're just negating, at, you know, nothing exists. Yeah, you confuse, you get confused and you think that negating true existence is negating all existence. And then you say, well, then there's no karma and its uh, effects. There's no law of karma. And if there's no longer uh, law of karma, then, hey, uh, let's do whatever we want because there's not going to be any results coming from it. And then our uh, ethical conduct, you know, degenerates really fast. Okay. So then, after gaining that uh, a good understanding of karma and really believing in it, you know, having that idea influence the choices you make, then with a motivation aspiring for either liberation or full awakening, we seek the antidote that will demolish samsara's root. What's the, that antidote? What's the root and what's the antidote? Ignorance is the root. Yeah, the realization of emptiness is the antidote. Okay. So Nagarjuna says, yeah, this is in his Karikas, the root of cyclic existence is formative action. Therefore, the wise one does not act. Who's the wise one? Who? The Arya beings. Okay. They're the wise ones. Okay. Therefore, the wise do not act. Therefore, the unwise is the agent. The wise one is not because he sees reality. Okay, so the first line, the root of cyclic existence is formative action. Okay, that, the first line points to formative action. Okay, the second link, as the root of samsara. Usually, the fundamental root of samsara is identified as ignorance. But here the root is said to be formative action because it is the source of consciousness of the consciousness entering into a new body. Yeah. The distinction between the wise and the unwise lies in whether or not someone has realized the emptiness of true existence. Yeah. So the wise one who are wise ones who are the aryas of all three vehicles. What are the three vehicles? Okay, so the here vehicle or shravaka, solitary realizer or prajaka Buddha, and bodhisattva or Mahayana. Okay, so the three vehicles are not vipassana, Zen, and Tantra. Okay, that's what many people in the West say when you ask about the three vehicles. Yeah. Seriously, Geshe-la, you know, it's, it's shocking sometimes. Okay, so wise ones, the aryas of all three vehicles, do not create formative actions because they have realized emptiness directly. Not having yet gained the real, direct realization of emptiness, unwise ordinary beings like us, Accumulate karma that propels new rebirth in cyclic existence. So that's the sad situation. In the third line, yeah, in saying the wise one does not act, Nagarjuna does not mean they do nothing at all. Okay, so this is the thing, you know. <laughs> these Aryas have renounced and then people think they, they're just, uh, we talked about this yesterday, bumps on the log. You know, I realize, uh, yeah, I don't believe. I don't do anything. Yeah? And Nagarjuna says the, the wise don't act, so, you know, I'm sitting here, bump on the log. 
and uh, I don't act, so you can all serve me. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to work. Okay. Um, in saying the wise, ones, uh, wise one does not act, Nagarjuna does not mean they do nothing at all. If that were the case, they would never complete the path. Yeah. Rather, the wise ones do not engage in activities motivated by their own self-centered samsaric desires. So when it says that the wise do not act, they do not act motivated by afflictions, especially craving. But in terms of creating the causes and conditions for liberation or awakening, yeah, the wise do as much as possible. They are extremely busy, yeah, doing one virtuous action after the other, yeah, enthusiastically with delight. So this leads to further investigation of the last two of the four truths, true cessations and true paths. So again, from Nagarjuna's Karikas, with the cessation of ignorance, formative action will not arise. The cessation of ignorance occurs through exercising wisdom in meditating on suchness. Yeah. In our tradition, suchness uh, is equivalent to emptiness. Yeah. In the Tathagata theory, as practice in, in uh, like China, for example, and I think Dopopa too. Um, my mind today, what was I just talking about? Hmm? Meaning of suchness. Yeah. So um, suchness refers to the Buddha essence, the Buddha nature, which they see as a positive phenomena or or as a uh, an affirming negation okay so the meaning of suchness in different traditions can be different when I was in um, in Taiwan you know do, working on research for the book um, I met with one professor and one of our Dharma friends was translating and he's an excellent translator. But he had not uh, studied uh, the the Chan version or the Tathagatagarbha version, and so he was translating such you know suchness and suchness this and suchness that, and the translator isn't understanding, and I'm not understanding, and it wasn't until later that figured oh they were he was talking from the Chan meaning of suchness, you know, that in uh, in Chinese Buddhism, the same word that the Tibetans give one meaning to, the Chinese give another meaning to. So it includes emptiness, okay, but it also includes virtuous phenomena that are part of the Buddha nature, okay? So it was like, cause, uh, after the interview, I was like, I, I said to him, what in the world was he talking about? I didn't understand it, you know? And he didn't understand it either. And then we figured this out. Okay. So I have a, a good friend who is a uh, Chinese monk who's also a very good scholar. So uh and he speaks, he's a Chinese-American, but he's also uh, American-Taiwanese. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he was able to explain some of this to me, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Okay. So, the Aryas, in terms of creating the causes and conditions for liberation or awakening, they do as much as possible. So here's this other um, verse that's going to lead us to think about true cessations and true paths. 
With the cessation of ignorance, formative action will not arise. With the, uh, the cessation of ignorance occurs through exercising wisdom and meditating on suchness. Okay, so ignorance is the root cause. If we stop it, formative action starts, stops. How do we stop ignorance? That wisdom, uh, non-conceptually realizing emptiness. Through the cessation of this and that, okay, this and that will not manifest. That which is only a mass of dukkha will thus completely cease. Okay, what's we talking about? Through the cessation of this and that. Huh? Okay. So the wisdom realizing emptiness is the true path that ceases the first link ignorance. In the second verse, the one I just read, okay, the uh, phrase this and that refers to first link ignorance and second link formative action. Okay, in other words, by ceasing ignorance, there is no fuel for formative action to arise. And in this way, the entire chain of 12 links that is a mass of constantly recurring misery ceases and nirvana, true wisdom, is obtained. True freedom is obtained. Thank you. I think I must be tired today. (laughs) Yeah? Okay. Uh, Then the next verse, the key that ceases first first link ignorance is the wisdom realizing the emptiness of of inherent existence. The Buddha and great sages taught many reasonings to refute inherent existence and establish emptiness. A famous one is refuting the four extremes of arising. Actually, it's probably better here to say diamond uh, slivers because the the name for extremes of arising can also apply to another uh, reasoning. Okay, so that can go in the change things. So uh, Nagarjuna introduces it. Because this wheel of samsara is not obtained from self, other, or from both in the past, present, or future, one who knows this overcomes the grasping of I and thereby karma and rebirth. Okay, so this uh, verse, is, which is from um, Ratnagota, the, the um, no, from um, God, Ratnavali, thank you. Yeah, so it's from Ratnavali, but it's very similar to the first verse in the Karikas. Uh, it's setting forth the same argument. Yeah. Okay, so cyclic existence, which is our pol- five polluted aggregates. So this is important. Some people think cyclic existence is this world, you know, that uh, I'm born in cyclic existence means I'm born on planet Earth. Yeah. And which means when I attain awakening, then I have to move to some other, someplace else, okay? And then how am I going to help sentient beings if I'm, you know, not in a samsaric world, okay? Samsara means our five polluted aggregates. Polluted means under the influence of ignorance and its latencies. Okay. So cyclic existence, our five polluted aggregates, does not arise from itself in the sense that it does not exist already inside its causes waiting to manifest. Okay, So it's not like there's some big cosmic substance and everything arises out of that, or there's one cosmic mind and everybody's individual mind arises out of that, okay? That would be arising from self. Okay. And arising from self, we we were talking about this before, it kind of implies um, predestination, 
something exists in the cause and it's just waiting to manifest. So samsara also does not arise from causes that are inherently different from it. Okay, The key word in that sentence is inherently because it does arise from causes that are different from it. Okay, if it arose from causes that are itself, then it would be arising from self. And there's problems with that one, which you got to wait for volume eight to, to get to all of that. Okay. Nor the other uh, alternate, another alternative, nor does it arise from both self and others together. Or a fourth alternative is without causes. So those four alternatives cover all the various ways that something could arise. Okay? Because there is no inherently existent origin of samsara, an absolute beginning to a set of 12 links cannot be found in the past, present, and future. If there were an inherently existent origin of samsara, that origin would not depend on anything. Remember, inherent existence means it's not dependent on any other factors, causes and conditions, parts, the mind that conceives and and designates it. Okay, so, um, yeah, so because there's no inherent existence, existent origin of samsara, an absolute beginning to the set of 12 links cannot be found. Okay, in the past, present, or future. So you, you look at the three times and can't find truly existent anything in any of the three times. So those who realize the dependent nature of samsara and the person who cycles in it can overcome the ignorance grasping inherent existence. Okay, so that's the key. By overcoming the root cause of samsara, the entire cycle of rebirth discontinues and nirvana is attained. And here's another verse from Ratnavali. Having properly realized that in this way, beings are actually unreal, having no basis for rebirth or any appropriation of new aggregates, one attains nirvana like a fire whose causes have ceased. Okay? So when you attain nirvana, the causes for samsara have ceased. Yeah? It's not like samsara goes somewhere else or you go somewhere else. <laughs> Bye, samsara. I'm checking out. You know? No, it's not like that. Yeah? Okay? It's by seeing that beings are actually unreal. Yeah? They don't inherently exist. And because they don't inherently exist, when you see that that's their nature, then you see that there's no basis for rebirth. There's no inherently existent person that's reborn. Okay? And so we'll stop here and then just talk about the... uh, well, actually, we'll do the, the reflection. just has two points. Okay. So review the forward and reverse orders of the afflictive dependent origination. Generate the aspiration to be free of samsara. And then review the forward and reverse orders of purified dependent origination and have conviction that it is possible to free yourself from samsara. So contemplating these things should affect us inside so that it, you know, makes us aspire for, uh, to be free of samsara and shows us that it's possible to be free. So don't just think these are, you know, like nice little lists of things that you memorize. Yeah, okay, they're hard to understand, but... And if we really go deeply into it, they can change something in our mind.
which is the point. Okay, so a few minutes questions, yeah? Back to the the Durrani chart. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 can you talk a little bit more about the second one, how the causes indicates true path? That to me is a leap that my mind can't make. How the, the second? The second in the chart that says those causes have been taught by the Tathagata relates to the true path. That's the, that's the, okay. so how cause leaps to true path to me, I don't, and it doesn't make sense. When you me. know the causes of samsara, okay, then you can learn how to counteract them so you can learn the true path. Okay. And it, uh, when, it, when it says those causes, it is referring, okay, all phenomena arise from causes. Okay. But those causes, if you think back to all phenomena, those causes could refer to the true path. Because the true path is the, quote, quote, it's not a real cause of nirvana, but it's similar. Yeah. But also, if you see ignorance as the cause of samsara, then you can say, well, then what's going to overcome the ignorance? It has to be the thing that sees people and phenomena in the opposite way than ignorance sees them. And that's the realization of emptiness. I think I got stuck in the sequence, though, because I what you just said makes sense. But I would have to know I'd have to know cessation before I'd be seeking the path. Uh huh. Right. That that's where I got stuck. Well, oh, okay, yeah, because here it, it's saying true path, and then the next one, where the Buddha said, "And there's cessation too." That's the true cessation. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the the way these correlations are made, yeah, it can be tricky. <laughs> Anything else? I actually said this in the hall the other day, but um, just from this from the Durrani that we say every day. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, at the interfaith event a couple of days ago, and just listening to very sincere people about their practice and how they're dealing with the world. I was so appreciating what we know about dependent arising as a comfort to understanding how the world works and how to move in the world. Yeah. It, I think it was the first time in the context of that interface situation that I felt so um, held somewhat in, in, that, mm-hmm. in the Buddhist conviction in dependent arising yeah. as being a, a, a comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're stuck with why do things happen the way they happen because it doesn't make any sense, you know? If you think in terms of God, it's very difficult. Okay, let's dedicate.